Hello and welcome to St. John's Derm Academy podcast, our educational resource for healthcare professionals in dermatology. I'd quickly like to mention our disclaimer that the information in this podcast is based on up-to-date information and expert opinion at the time of its recording. The podcast is intended for healthcare professionals, so although we welcome any patients listening, we do suggest that they see their own physician for personal medical advice. My name is Dr. Justin Bui. I'm a Senior Clinical Fellow in Medical Dermatology and Medical Education here at St. John's Institute of Dermatology, and I'm delighted to be the host this year of the Derm Academy podcast. Now, across the next two episodes, Dr. John Ferguson will be joining me to talk about vitiligo. Dr. Ferguson is a consultant dermatologist at St. John's Institute of Dermatology in London, specialising in vitiligo, phototherapy and photobiology. He's the lead of the Vitiligo Clinic at Guy's Hospital, a tertiary referral service, so he's indeed a very qualified guest for this episode of the Derm Academy podcast. Welcome, Dr. Ferguson. Thanks very much. Great to be here. So in this episode, we'll be covering the etiology, clinical features, and investigations for vitiligo. Following on from this, we'll dedicate a separate episode focused on the different treatment modalities available for vitiligo. So perhaps to start, Dr. Ferguson, we could begin by talking about the current understanding of what causes vitiligo. So vitiligo is an autoimmune disease triggered by um, a, a sort of a mismanagement of oxidative stress in the melanocytes and keratinocytes of uh, individuals that leads to a cytotoxic T-cell mediated interferon gamma mediated um, attack on melanocytes. And this causes this characteristic appearance of these milk white macules, which are well demarcated that start appearing on patients who suffer from vitiligo skin. Um, and, and, and that's just probably, probably the, the shortest possible summary of, of what is vitiligo. You know, I think that's, that's, what, that's, how it, that's, that's what's happening and that's how it appears on your skin. Um, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot um, of work that's got into, into un- trying to understand exactly, you know, how those mechanisms vary in the different subtypes of vitiligo, where segmental vitiligo only, appear, only appearing on some parts of the body, generalized vitiligo, acrofacial vitiligo, focal patches, chemical vitiligo, are all kind of subtypes of this phenomenon. Right, I think that's a really good overview. Uh, thanks, John. Um, and we'll touch on the more clinical aspects um, a little bit later on. Um, so, Dr. Ferguson, you um, lead a referral vitiligo clinic uh, here at St. John's. So what kind of patients do you see most commonly in your clinics? I try to have the referral criteria for the vitiligo clinic as open as possible because um, I think vitiligo patients, uh, a lot of vitiligo patients out there have really limited access to treatment. And so I don't, uh, and I also have noted that patients, that the severity of patients, the extent of patients' disease doesn't correlate particularly well. With the with the severity of their distress and the psychological impact that it's having on them, so I really try and have the broadest possible criteria for patients coming to see me. Anyone who their doctor thinks might have vitiligo, anyone who um, has been diagnosed with vitiligo, I'm always happy to review them. We don't always offer everyone long term follow up, and it's often not practical if they've come from far away. But we try and review patients. Um, 
and uh, give advice. And sometimes we send advice back with them to their referring dermatologist. But yeah, we try and see as many vitiligo patients as we can full stop. Perfect. Um, and you briefly touched on that as well, but um, so vitiligo is obviously a condition that affects patients, not just physically, um, but also or psychosocially. Um, how do you approach this aspect of caring for patients with vitiligo? Well, we're the, the first thing to say is, is that we're lucky that we have a clinical psychologist in our clinic. And um, it, it's very important to have clinical psychology support with this disease because that's a big part of why it's so distressing is that it's largely asymptomatic. And for that reason, I think, you know, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere with fairer skin patients, pale, paler skin patients, um, for many years, it's been sort of somewhat kind of ignored and not taken so seriously because it's not particularly symptomatic if, you, if you've got fair skin. You're not necessarily very itchy. Some patients are. You don't necessarily have discomfort, although some people do. Um, and as a result, people have just thought, well, it's not it's maybe not that big a deal. It's kind of a cosmetic problem. Uh, and in actual fact, what you find with not just with darker skin patients, but also with many fairer skin patients too, um, is that the psychological impact is highly significant. It has a big impact on people. The effect of being stared at continuously as you move around through your day, the distraction factor of trying to do your job while people are noticing that your face or your hands look different is a big deal for people. It also affects people, um, younger people, if they're trying to um, perhaps find a partner, get get married, um, those sorts of things. And they can be a big issue, particularly uh, for some cultural groups more than others. Um, and yeah, it has it's associated with considerable stigma in some cultures. So yeah, it has a huge impact as a result of all of these things. And we're kind of trying always to work out how we can help with that. And it's been interesting working with Mark Turner, our you know, very able clinical psychologist, that you know, some of the patients who come in extremely distressed by their vitiligo, that um, if, if we get the acceptance and commitment therapy right, they come back to see me in clinic months later, much, much, much happier and ready to engage with treatment with kind of realistic expectations. And that makes a huge difference to how they, and probably makes a difference to the outcome of their disease, because this is often acknowledged by patients and, and by physicians treating them alike, that this is a stress mediated problem. So I think managing the stress associated with the disease probably does have a benefit to prognosis. Yeah, and, and that's an interesting point there about about stress. So a lot of times patients will come in and say, you know, I think this was triggered by stress. Do we know anything about the relationship between vitiligo and, and stress? I don't think we know anything um, categorical. You know, what exactly is do we mean by stress? You know, what sort of stress is, is causing the problem? What is clear is that... Um, at the cellular level within the melanocytes, if you ha- if the, when the melanocytes are under stress, physical stress, um, or perhaps um, chemical stress, um, and perhaps emotional stress too, you know they start to produce these molecules called damage-associated um, molecular proteins, and 
they those recruit um, cytotoxic T cells and cause this um, and start to trigger this immune um, response against the melanocytes. And so, you know, probably there is a mechanism that is understandable. How exactly, you know, the relationship is defined between the kind of your cortisol going up because you've had a really difficult day and then that, you know, landing on the receptor of your melanocyte. What exactly is the interplay there? I don't think we really know, but I, I think we can kind of, there's there's enough pieces of the jigsaw around for you to get a sense of what the picture might be, that, that probably stress does have a sort of cellular biochemical effect that triggers the vitiligo. And, and in talking about kind of the pieces of the jigsaw there, so, so um, where, where did the understanding of vitiligo kind of come from and um, where, when, when did it start to kind of gain attention as a disease? So one interesting story about this oxidative stress model of vitiligo is this story about the rhododendron, which I think is very illustrative of how vitiligo might work, how, how the pathophysiology of the disease works. Um, uh, which is this story about rhododendron in Japan. Rhododendron was a, a lightning cream that had become popular in Japan um, uh, in the 90s and early 2000s. And it was being used to lighten patients' skin. And unfortunately for around 250,000 people who um, had been using this cream, it led to them developing vitiligo. And this obviously, you know, was a uh, caused a bit of a national scandal and, and the withdrawal of this this cream, and it stopped being available. But what's interesting is is that in the aftermath of this, about twenty five thousand patients continued to have the problem and develop proper vitiligo, and the remaining ninety percent, it all just went away. And I think what that shows is that with vitiligo, if you if you if you do drive the stress, if you the, the, what was what happens with the rhododendron molecule is is that it gets absorbed into your melanocytes and it gets mistaken for um, uh, tyrosine, the amino acids that's the building block of melanin pigment, and it gets sort of misadded, if you like, to the process of making melanin. And as a result of that, it kind of clogs up the apparatus of melanin production. And this causes the cell to sort of malfunction. It's not working properly because it's not got the right ingredients. It's sort of, it's meant to be making strawberry tarts, but you're putting bananas in, you know, and it's not, they're not coming out right. And as a result, um, your kind of foreman at the end of the production line is saying, like, we're going to have to close down the line. You know, we're going to have to close it down. Guys, come over here and shut down this line. And and that's what happens if you drive the stress enough. And clearly, you know, for, uh, and, and vitiligo, one way of understanding vitiligo is that, you know, you've got this, if you, if you drive the stress of the melanocytes enough, then you'll produce vitiligo. But for some people, you know, maybe the problem is later on, you know, perhaps the foreman's just really, really overzealous. And so he's shutting down lines because there's like one strawberry that's not quite right on the strawberry tart. And, you know, and then maybe perhaps there's for other people, there's um, 
uh, there's an immune process further down the line. The, the guys coming in to shut down the line, they're more aggressive and they're over the top. And they're, you know, the foreman, you know, raises his hand and just twitches a little bit. And the guys come in and, you know, swarm over and shut down all of the plants. And that's totally over the top. So that's why it's a kind of a multi, it's, it's a, it's a complex pathway and you've got multiple different factors. And there are, that's why that even with identical twins, you know, you only really have 23% concordance. Um, of them both having vitiligo, which is a lot more than if you meet someone in the street, you know, they've got vitiligo, you know, that you're a lot less likely to have vitiligo than 23% of the time. So there's obviously a genetic component, but it's not, um, uh, it's, it's complex. And clearly there are a lot of random factors. There are a lot of environmental factors um, that, that play a role too. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a complex system that kind of, when it becomes dysfunctional, leads to vitiligo. For sure, um, that's uh, a very uh, elaborate, well thought out. Um, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> colourful, colourful metaphor. There, yeah, so it's obviously it's, it's it's tea time. <laughs> I might have to um, borrow that for, for my next conversation about the logo. Um, no. um, so, and um, kind of leading on from that, so. Uh, have you noticed a way or, or a change in the way that midligo is perceived, um, you know, in 2022 amongst doctors as well as patients compared to, you know, let's say in the last decade? Yeah, I definitely think it's changing. Um, and I think in a good way. Um, vitiligo, when I was a, uh, a junior registrar, I remember being told not to bother treating vitiligo patients with phototherapy because they would, uh, or various different ways of putting it, they all, they'll, they just get stuck in the machine. They never finish the course. It's, it doesn't work well enough. You know, the patient um, will get addicted to the phototherapy or something like that. And um, I, I, I think in, with the benefit of hindsight, that way of looking at vitiligo, the, the other thing that would often be said was, well, the vitiligo will just come back, which of course is true of all of the inflammatory conditions that we treat. I mean, we treat psoriasis with phototherapy and it frequently does just come back. We treat eczema with phototherapy and it tr frequently comes back. And and lots of our other tr treatments that we use, if you stop them, the methotrexate, you know, the psoriasis will often come back. And the same thing with the, the newer treatments too. So I, I, I sort of, I, that would often be said. And I don't, and I think in, with the benefit of hindsight, I think it doesn't really make much sense as an argument against treating a disease that's really bothering a patient. The fact that it's persistent and treatment refractory doesn't mean you shouldn't treat it. So I think that's something that's definitely changing. You know, we're taking vitiligo much more seriously, I think rightly so. Um, we're starting to perhaps, uh, you know, try and um, improve the care of this group of patients in the UK where I think we perhaps been a little bit left behind our you know, European co um, colleagues and um, more recently, the, I think in the States as well with um, uh, teams like um, John Harris's team at UMass who've really you know, revolutionized Vitiligo um, and, and other colleagues um, over on the West Coast too with Amit Pandia and Pearl Grimes and um, those guys um, who are taking a really serious interest in Vitiligo. It's, it's starting to change. Um, uh, I do think that um, it's past time and it's really important that we do try and make sure that dermatology colleagues don't dismiss patients with small areas of vitiligo and say, oh, you know, we don't need to worry too much about this, that we do treat it, 
and we do take it seriously and we do monitor these patients um, if that's what they want. You know? Yeah, I think that's a really important kind of shift in the way that we that we um, see vitiligo um, and it's very promising, obviously, um, as well that we're kind of moving that way. Yeah, I think it's also, it's interesting because I think the science of understanding vitiligo in a way has been ahead of the treatments, you know, because I think vitiligo and, and melanocytes are um, interesting from a skin cancer point of view, as well as from an inflammatory disease point of view, I think we've actually kind of got, we've, we've developed quite a good understanding of vitiligo, what's in its, um, what's involved in, in, in the process. It's interesting because it is a feature of some of the new drugs that treat melanoma. Um, and so I think there's a, you know, there's been a lot of work kind of coming to understand vitiligo and the immune processes that might be involved in it. Um, but only recently have we started to get new treatments. I mean, um, apart from tacrolimus, really it's only in, only this last year or two that we've had anything new and the JAK inhibitors seem to be the new thing that are exciting at the moment. Although I suspect there are other things coming just around the corner um, that are going to be interesting too. Um, mm. And, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're excited to sort of see how that pans out. So we've now got a patient in front of us who, who has vitiligo, um, someone in the clinic. So um, how, how do you approach that and how do you um, assess the patient with vitiligo in terms of um, severity and is there anything that you look for um, for you know, clues of active vitiligo? Yeah, that's, that's really important to try and understand that. So, well, the first thing, we, we, we have a system in clinic which where we send patients questionnaires before they come in. So the first thing that the patient gets when they're in the waiting area or even at home before they kind of come in are questionnaires about the impact of their disease, vitiligo impact scale, the vitiligo noticeability scale. We do a DLQI. We do some of the depression and anxiety scores, um, PHQ-9 and GAD-7 scores. We um, also measure the stigma scale, um, which is a specific scale that's developed to try and understand stigma. Um, and so we collect those. So the first thing I do when I'm assessing a patient before they come in the room is look at those. And that's really important because it gives you an idea of how the person who's coming through the door is feeling, you know, which is the really, really useful because it makes a big difference in how you're going to start that conversation and talk to that patient because people vary enormously and you have absolutely no way of knowing when they, um, when you call their name or how they're going to be feeling um, without that. And it's, so we find that very, very helpful. And that's the same for new and returning patients. Well, once the patient's in the room, we ask patients, um, I, I normally start by asking the patient when they first noticed their vitiligo, um, how old they were um, and where exactly their first spot was. Sometimes patients do just have a single spot for a period of time and then start to develop more generalized symmetrical kind of pattern in the way that we usually see it. Some patients, of course, just have segmental disease. Um, but it's important to try and understand that quickly. Um, some patients have a, a short history with rapid progression um, and some patients have had the disease for a really long time and it's been progressing slowly. Um, and generally speaking, that's useful to understand, you know, because the best guide to how they're going to do going forward is 
how have they been doing in the last six months to a year? If they've had the disease for 10 years and they have limited involvement, it's probably going to carry on in that way. Um, but sometimes patients just have an inflection point and it just changes really rapidly. And actually they say, well, I've had it for 10 years, but in the last year, it's just suddenly gone ballistic and I don't know why. So you, 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 you're sort of trying to understand that. And the things that I think measure activity to some extent, as well as obviously just change in the body surface area involvement, which we kind of calculate with this vitiligo extent score system that Nanya van Heel developed in um, Ghent. Uh, we use that to sort of understand the extent. The, the other signs that we look for when we're examining the patient clinically and taking the history are, do they have the Kerbner phenomenon? So do they have activity in scars and recent scratches? Sometimes patients, you know, very small amount of trauma, just a sort of graze or a cat scratch or something, and they'll start to develop vitiligo. I saw someone uh, yesterday who'd been having um, uh, laser tattoo removal and they had very striking vitiligo in the area of their of their tattoo removal. And that was, that was really noticeable for them. Um, Sometimes patients have trichrome involvement. That means sort of three-color involvement. That can be a very striking sign of activity. You can sort of see that sort of penumbra where the melanocytes, are st there's still some alive, but they're being attacked. And so you, you can see fewer of them. Very occasionally, there can be erythema around the edge, although that's you know unusual. We rarely see that. Um, sometimes there's this confetti sign where you have little dots of vitiligo around the edge. That's slightly different to the sort of penumbra effect, and that can be that's all, it's frequently a sign of activity. Um, uh, those are the main things. Um, you know, sometimes patients will have a history of the curb nephron, but you wouldn't necessarily see it, so it's worth asking them as well as examining them. It's always worth looking with the woods lamp because sometimes you'll think, oh, well, this looks like very typical quiet vitiligo. But then when you examine with the wood slam, you'll realize, oh, actually there is a trichrome component here and there's an, a new incipient area around, around their face that they haven't even been aware of. And you know that can sometimes be a bit upsetting for the patient if you find areas that they didn't know they had. So you have to sort of be sensitive about how you communicate that to them when you find it. It's also useful, the wood slam, because you can find um, clinical signs of conditions that aren't vitiligo. You, you know, you can you can find um, signs of progressive macular hypomelanosis, for example, with the sort of um, coral pink or orangey pink fluorescence of propionema acnes, which is associated with that condition. Sometimes you might find the sort of orangey fluorescence of um, uh, malassezia yeasts, and that can be useful if you're wondering, you know, what, what is going on here. Um, and it can make it suddenly crystal clear. And it's nice because the patient can see it too. So they buy into that narrative straight away if they can see it themselves. So I think, you know, it's it's often underused these days in clinical practice, the woods lamp, but it's actually very, very useful. Yeah, that's a really handy tip about the woods lamp. Yeah, you can get them now for not very much money. And they're really, they, they can be quite, quite helpful. You do need to have a room which you can make dark though. And that's often a problem. Um, because, you know, often for other bits of clinical examination, people like to have light and natural light is good. So it, it, it creates a, you need to make sure you've got good blinds in your rooms. Right. Um, and so uh, for the last question on this section, we might just talk briefly about investigation. So um, at what point do we think about investigations for underlying associations when seeing patients with the vitiligo? Um, I tend to do that the first time I meet them um, and just... I, I'm always careful to explain to patients that, you know, when we're looking for 
these associations, they're not causal. You know, it's not if they have a low thyroid, the thyroid doesn't give them vitiligo. It's just that these are fellow travelers, probably um, because they have uh, the, the same problems with their immune system that might make them likely to have vitiligo, also might make them likely to have um, uh, you say thyroid dysfunction. You know, that it, 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 it makes sense. And certainly thyroid uh, is one of the commonest things that we see in, in our vitiligo patients. About a quarter of vitiligo patients have some sort of thyroid problem. Um, we also see quite commonly pernicious anemia. Um, and we see, uh, we and then not discovered on blood testing, but we also see a, a lot of eczema associated. And sometimes actually eczema, I think, uh, is a trigger for vitiligo. And you see that with people with very severe chronic contact dermatitis. You sometimes see that with um, patients with chronic actinic dermatitis too, um, give it, developing eczema in the areas where they've got chronic inflammation. And, and, you know, that fits in with our idea about stress and oxidative stress. Um, so, yeah. So, no, I tend to do a full panel of autoimmune sort of bloods. Um, we look at intrinsic factor, gastric parietal cell antibodies, uh, um, thyroid autoantibodies, thyroid function, uh, B12 levels. Um, and we look at an ANA, which is, is, can, is obviously quite a commonly found problem. Although I, I, it's quite rare, but not unheard of for patients to have lupus and vitiligo. We do see, we do see that. Alopecia areata we sometimes see, although we don't pick that up on blood testing. Um, I, I do do some other blood tests, um, uh, acetyl, choline receptor antibodies for myasthenia gravis, although I think that's actually very rare and I probably shouldn't do those. And maybe, maybe if guys hospital hear about it, they'll, they'll be, they'll be upset because I think they're probably quite expensive. And I do some, so I do a few, and if you do some immunoglobulins and things like that for, um, some of the conditions, um, IgA deficiency and things that are sometimes associated with vitiligo more rarely. But I think probably if I were just in, in general clinic, I think thyroid B12, those are the most important ones to do. Maybe ANA, um, probably also actually glucose and HbA1c are worth doing because diabetes is quite common. Perfect. Um, thanks for that, Dr. Ferguson. And um, so with that, we might wrap up the first episode um, that mainly focuses on the clinical and, and a little bit about the history of um, vitiligo as a disease as well. Um, so we hope that you can join us for the second part of this um, podcast uh, where we'll go into more detail um, about treatment options and uh, the future um, of vitiligo treatment. For more information, please visit www.stjohnsdermacademy under our podcast tab. Here you can also find a link to our podcast survey. We hugely appreciate your feedback and we're very keen to hear about what we did well and what we could do better. We're also looking for other topics that our audience would be interested in hearing about in the future. All the feedback received will be used to design our future content that suits your educational needs. Finally, I'd like to say thank you to our partners at Derm Academy. Abvi, Amrao, Leo, Lily, Novartis, Sanofi and UCB. Although they don't have any influence on the content produced in this podcast, their support is hugely valuable to us. And thank you, of course, for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.